Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible, turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 802. We are winding down our study uh, through the prophecy of Malachi, and we will finish up next week, and then from there it will be on to the book of Luke as we get into the Advent season. Uh, But for this morning, as we continue making our way through the book of Malachi, as we see that God is after the hearts of his people, we're going to see that the Lord expects his people to be faithful in their giving. And so we're in Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to pick up this morning beginning in verse 6. Malachi says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So last week we saw that God's people had begun to accuse him of being indifferent to all of the pain and injustice in the world. And in the high point of this entire prophecy, the Lord responded to that accusation by promising that he was about to send a messenger who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah, and that through that Messiah, he would address all of the evil, suffering, and injustice in the world once and for all. And we saw how that promise was pointing forward to the ministries of John the Baptist, and then ultimately, Jesus himself. And the truth is that God will deal with everything that is wrong in this world, either by redeeming it through the cross of Christ, or by destroying it and judging it for eternity in hell. But in the end, all things will be made right. We also saw that despite their presumption, uh, the people themselves were not ready for that because they were just as sinful and wicked as anybody else. And in fact, if anything, their position as God's people made their sin even worse. And so now as we move into Malachi's fifth disputation here in verse 6, he continues on with that same truth. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Again, if the people are under the impression that they want everyone to get what they deserve, then they need to understand that judgment should begin with them. But Malachi points out that the Lord does not change. And that's the only reason why they are still here. And so we remember that when the Lord revealed himself to Moses... He described himself as a God who is is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is who God is, and God does not change. And it's because of that, only because of that, that the the ancient Israelites were, were still around. They could have been rightly destroyed, but they are still there. That word consumed is full of potential for divine judgment that the Lord has not acted upon. So because God is faithful, the people are still here despite 
their sin. And so the good news is that the Lord does not change. The problem is that his people don't seem to change either. And so as we look at verse 7, he says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Over and over again throughout their history, the Israelites rebelled against the Lord consistently and broke the covenant that they made with him. Despite the fact that the Lord was never anything other than good and faithful to his people, they were consistently uh, selfish and idolatrous and turned away from him. But the Lord does not change. And so in the second half of verse 7, he calls the people to repentance once again. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. And when he promises to return to them, uh, he's referring to the, the fact that he will once again grant them the blessings that he has been withholding from them because of their sin. As the Lord invites his people to have a renewed relationship with him if they will turn away from their sin and turn back to him. Unfortunately, as we've come to expect uh, over the course of Malachi, the people push back against Malachi uh, here at the end of the verse. They ask, how shall we return? And the word how here isn't asking how in the sense of, well, what should we do about this? It's asking how in the sense of, what could you possibly be talking about? And so if you're a fan of the Sandlot, then you may remember the campout scene when Smalls gets offered a s'more. He says, I don't understand. How can I have some more of something that I haven't had anything of? And that's kind of the sense here, that the people are asking how they could possibly need to return to the Lord. That would imply that they had gotten away from him in some sense. And the the total lack of self-awareness is staggering. This entire prophecy has just been a list of one way after another that the people have gotten off track. Just pick one. But beginning in verse 8, Malachi is going to identify an additional specific way that the people need to return. So we'll pick up again beginning in verse 8. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse because you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And so, picking up again in verse 8, the Lord identifies a specific way that the people need to return to him through the use of a rather provocative question. He asks, will man rob God? And on the face of it, that question would seem to to be answered by a rather obvious no. If you're going to steal from somebody, then then the all-knowing, all-powerful ruler of the universe isn't exactly the best target that you could pick. Nevertheless, The Lord insists in the middle of the verse that the people are, in fact, robbing him. This is is happening. Not surprisingly, the people protest, how have we robbed you? And the Lord answers at the end of the verse when he says that they are robbing him through their tithes and contributions. In other words, the people are robbing the Lord by not giving him what he is due. Now, the concept of tithing in the Old Testament is often misunderstood. Most people simply assume that the Israelites gave 10% of their income to the temple, but it's actually more complex than that. In fact, the law required three different tithes from the people. One was to be used to support the work of the priests. One was used to be uh, celebrated at festivals. And then another was to be used to support the poor in the community. 
And depending on how you put them all together within one calendar year, what you find is that the Israelites were actually required to give somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of their annual income, which doesn't include additional offerings and sacrifices that they might make. And so a tithe equals 10 percent, but when you add multiple tithes together, it, it comes to significantly more than that. But for one reason or another, or some combination of reasons, the people have stopped giving their tithes. As you may remember, we, we saw this when we were going through the book of Nehemiah. At one point, the people had stopped giving their tithes to support the priests, and so all the priests had to leave their service at the temples to go back home and work in their fields until Nehemiah was able to set things right again. And so as we said before, whether Malachi was slightly before Nehemiah or whether he came slightly after, either way, the people's response to correction here does not appear very promising. And so in verse 9, the Lord reveals what the people should already understand, which is that they are experiencing his curse against them. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses explained the blessings that the people would experience if they kept the, the stipulations of the covenant. And he also explained the curses that they would experience if they broke the terms of the covenant. And of course, they've already experienced the curses through the exile, but, but now in less than a hundred years after that, the people are already falling back into their old ways, and so the curses are beginning to ramp up again. And the reason why the people's situation at this point of time is so bad is because the Lord is trying to get their attention by withholding his blessing from them to get them back on the right track. And starting in verse 10, the Lord is going to make his desire for the people's restoration very clear. And so we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 10. He says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And so picking up again in verse 10, the Lord makes an appeal to the people. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And we see here God's genuine desire to bless his people. Right? God wants what's best for his people, but what's best for them can't be found apart from him. Right? He is what's best for them. And so he makes them an offer. He calls them to test him. He says, just try it once. He calls them to, to bring the tithes into the storehouse of the temple like they're supposed to, and watch what happens. You see, in, in the second half of verse 10, the Lord promises to open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. In verse 11, he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. All right, and the devourer is probably a reference to a plague of locusts, which had previously destroyed the crops and the fields of the Israelites in fulfillment of the Lord's judgment against them because of their sin. 
As we saw back in chapter 2, that the word rebuke in this particular context means to put a stop to something. Right? The Lord's not just going to tell the locusts, hey, you guys need to stop doing that. No, he's going to command them to stop, and they will stop. The Lord offers to restore all of the blessings that he has been withholding. And if and when that happens, Israel will be the envy of the world. He says in verse 12, that all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. If Israel will just be obedient here, then they will experience so much blessing that all of the other nations of the world will take notice of them. And once again, Malachi leaves the ball in their court. In our our passage this morning, the Lord calls his, his people to return to faithfulness to him, specifically through giving their tithes. And as Christians, we're called to be faithful givers as well. Right? Throughout the New Testament, we see that churches are responsible for, for funding the ministries of the local church, and for partnering financially with gospel workers in other places, and for contributing to the needs of fellow believers, among other things. Right? And this is fitting because the theme of Malachi is that God wants our hearts. Right? And it's perhaps very true that nothing reveals the spiritual condition of our hearts like the way we handle our money. I I was reminded this week of of what Billy Graham once stated when he said that a checkbook is a theological document. The checkbook is a theological document. He says, it will tell you who or what you worship. He said, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook, and I'll tell you where their heart is. And in this, he's only echoing Jesus' words himself. When he said that where a person's treasure is, there their heart will be also. And so the question for this morning is, what does your checkbook, or perhaps your credit card statement, say about your heart? What does your checkbook, or perhaps your credit card statement, say about your heart. Now, as we've seen throughout Malachi, there is both overlap and distinction in how we apply these words to our lives today. And like the message about marriage from a couple of weeks ago, how we handle our money uh, is a very broad topic, and it's not possible for us to say everything that the Bible says about how we handle our money in simply one sermon. And so I want to throw out a couple of points of application that are, are directly related to this particular passage. And this morning, I want to give two reasons why believers are not required to tithe in the same way the ancient Israelites were. And I'll give some reasons why I think tithing is still a good idea. So two reasons why believers are not required to tithe in the same way the ancient Israelites were. And then some reasons why I still think tithing is a good idea. So first of all, believers are not required to tithe because we're under the new covenant. Right, the, the laws, uh, the tithing system uh, was given to Israel along with the rest of the laws in the Old Covenant, including the sacrificial system, the food laws, and other things like that. Right, but as Jesus comes to fulfill the law, and as the gospel uh, is spread under the New Covenant, and it's received by Gentiles who have absolutely no concept of tithing, right, we see that tithing is never an expectation that is given for churches anywhere in the New Testament. And so despite its popular conception uh, in our uh, church world today, tithing is no more a requirement for believers today than not eating bacon or wearing clothing with two different types of fabric. 
But secondly, directly related to this, tithing is not a requirement for New Testament believers because our conception of tithing under the Old Covenant is often faulty. As I mentioned a moment ago, most people simply assume that the Israelites gave 10% of their income to the temple. But in reality, there were multiple tithes, and taken all together, it came up to a, a total of between 20 and 30% of their income. And so if we wanted to insist on tithing, then that would be the target in order for us to be consistent. 10% is not going to cut it. But I've never heard for anybody calling for 20 to 30% of our income. So believers are not required to give 10% of their income under the New Covenant, but now I want to give you some reasons why I still think that's a good idea, or, or at least something like it. First of all, Christians should give more because we have more. According to the best statistics and research we have, the average Christian in America gives around 3% of their income. And while I feel like I have to stop short of saying that that is a sin— I have no question at all that it is absolutely absurd. It is completely ridiculous to think that people who live in the, mo in the wealthiest country and society in the history of the world cannot give as much as an ancient people who lived in an agrarian society. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous, again, that, that people who have so much more than everybody else throughout most of human history would only come up with 3% of their income to give to the kingdom. So think of a, for a moment about all of the kingdom work that we're doing around the world today. And then think about how much more we could accomplish if we tripled our giving, which still wouldn't be a tithe, because 3 times 3% is only 9%. If we would triple our giving, every nation in the world could have a missionary presence. Every language of the world could have a translation of God's word that they could read for themselves. At the persecuted church around the world could have their financial and medical needs met. Every church planter could have the resources they needed to hit the ground running. And again, we still wouldn't even be tithing at that point because we would only be at 9%. Church, Jesus tells us that to whom much is given much will be required. And when we think about how much God has blessed us, it should lead us to give more. Secondly, we should give more because we have received more. As those who have received the fulfillment of God's promised salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is something that the Israelites of Malachi's day could only dream about, we should be even more willing to give joyfully and to invest ourselves in the work of the kingdom. The issue comes down to whether or not we see it as a priority. Do we really see the kingdom as urgently important? Do we ever take time to stop and think about those who have never heard the gospel? Or, or the pastors around the world who have very little access to theological resources? Our brothers and sisters in the faith whose, whose faith has been tested through persecution in ways that we can only imagine. And how easily we could make an impact, a much greater impact that would echo on throughout eternity. Church, if we really think about what we have received spiritually and physically, how can we not respond by being generous in return? 
Third, we should give more simply to protect our hearts against a love of money. And one of the biggest dangers in the Bible, which may have been at play here in Malachi, is a preoccupation with material things. And that's never been more of a temptation than it is for us today. In America, we have so much stuff that we have to rent space just to put it all in because we can't keep it all within our own home. It's easy for us to think, well, well, I can only give this much for kingdom purposes, but it doesn't take much for us to dig deeper to buy a new car or to have nicer clothes or a bigger house or the latest gadget or whatever the case may be. And and I want to be clear, this is not intended to create a guilt trip in you, unless you need one. The the point is not for us to become legalistic about our giving. The point is that we need to give ourselves a heart check this morning about what we do and why. Anytime I meet with people and talk with them about church membership here, I tell them that our members are expected to give, but that we don't put an exact number on that. No two people make the exact same amount of money. No two people have the exact same amount of expenses. No two people have the exact same convictions about what it looks like to honor the Lord with their finances. Personally, I do think that 10% is a good target for us to aim for. And statistically, if everybody did that, we would change the world almost overnight. But there may be a season of life where you can't give that much. Or it may be that based on how God has blessed you financially, 10% might not be nearly enough. If we're honest, some people like to tithe because they feel like that gets them off the hook. When, when generous, sacrificial giving would actually require much more from them. I remember this week that R.G. Letourneau was a, a successful businessman who lived off of a tithe. He gave the other 90% of his income away. Again, the point is not for us to become legalistic this morning, but it's for us to do the heart work that is necessary for us to honor the Lord with our finances. And Jesus tells us not to store up treasure on this earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. And so as you think about your own personal situation this morning, I want to leave us with a few questions. First of all, do you give to the kingdom? If not, why not? If so, then why do you give what you give? Do you think the Lord is pleased with how much you give? Do you think that your giving reflects how the Lord has blessed you in your life? Do you think that you balance enjoying this life with preparing yourself and others for the life to come? Or do you think that perhaps you place too much emphasis on the here and now while neglecting things that are eternal? Might the Lord be calling you to give more this morning? Church, God is after our hearts. This is the message of Malachi. And few things reveal the spiritual condition of our hearts, like how we handle our money. And so this morning, may we be individuals and a church whose hearts belong fully to the Lord. And may that be reflected in how we handle our finances. Let's pray together.